way, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification, which we can't fake, and vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below, which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now, once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. 
I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had, a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2 the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was, and I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal, and of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor, and thus the music... And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And, of course, because of her move, move, the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet, and one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like... It, I don't know. Like you, we've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it, and it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and and you know we we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when we t- when I brought it up to to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history. That I had growing up, and by the way, we yep. did everything. And these that that Were odor sounded. No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross country runner, and and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot, and and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house, and it infected yeah. the clothes. Like my clothes smelled. My my I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh. So, 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 so does your, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human and I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. (laughs) Anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but the podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're we're I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also because you you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much you know your odor, your body is producing. That this doctor that I spoke to. Um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than two hundred and fifty thousand sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you want to know um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's gross. uh, It's gross, and and so so. So what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you, what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the, so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help, dim, you know, diminish it. Like, it's, you know, I'll grow it hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to, um, to get synthetic 
material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called um, Smart Wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think, a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down, and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so I know, it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's gonna it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this the stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus so you can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot and like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully like for 24 hours and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that, then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, the, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Um, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like Febreze can work. And I said this is going to mask the odor, um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. And she puts on the rubber. I can't believe a flip flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Fully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also, What's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just, Throw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm hoping. I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, 
he actually did grow out of it. But, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just oh. cre- it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last, a few weeks ago. I get into a cab. And, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about, like, body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's... It's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor. And as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that's, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So <laughs> this is good news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And... This could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home (laughs) and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. This is Our American Stories, and what you're about to hear, well, it might be disturbing to those of you listening who are sensitive to stories about animal abuse. But in this dark corner of American history, our producer Jesse Edwards brings us the story of an elephant who was killed by an angry mob. Marching into a big top to the sound of a drunken four-piece band, the elephants in Charlie Sparks' traveling circus did their best to entertain the audience on that cold afternoon of February 1916. They sat on their haunches, stood on their heads, and performed an elephant train as they placed their forelegs on each other's backs and trumpeted around the ring. In short, they performed every trick they had known, but they could not make up for the absence of the real star of the show, a five-ton Asian elephant named Mary. 
Mary's talents included picking out 25 tunes on musical horns, which she tooted out with her trunk. She was also the champion pitcher on the circus's baseball team. But on that tragic day, she had been stripped of her red and gold saddle and dress of artificial blue feathers and stood tethered in disgrace outside the tent. Waiting there in the drizzling rain, it was said that she trembled fearfully, as if aware of the awful fate about to befall her. And well she might have done, for murderous Mary, as she became known, had not only killed a man, but had made the mistake of doing so near Irwin, Tennessee. This newly booming American railroad town had its own post office, theater, and courthouse. It also had a jail, but the sheriff's authority counted for little in a part of the world where mob rule still prevailed. Her fate was sealed the day before the hanging, when Charlie Sparks' circus train arrived in the small town of Kingsport, about 40 miles from Irwin. As always, it advertised its presence with a parade along the main street, during which Mary was ridden by 38-year-old Walter Eldridge, nicknamed Red because of his red, rusty-colored hair. He was a drifter who had been with the circus only one day. He had no experience of handling elephants, but the only qualification required was the ability to wield an elephant stick, a rod with a sharp spear at one end. While the elephant stick usually kept Mary in line, she was suffering from a painfully abscessed tooth that day. When she stopped during the parade to nibble on a piece of discarded watermelon rind, Red Eldridge jabbed her to keep her moving and inadvertently hit the tender spot. Her reaction was swift and deadly. Reaching up with her trunk, she slammed him to the ground and then stepped on his head. Blood and brains and stuff just squirted all over the street, recalled one witness. As the terrified spectators screamed and fled, a local blacksmith shot Mary with a pistol, unloading five rounds of ammunition into her thick hide to little effect. She stood still, suddenly calm again and seemingly oblivious to both the bullets and the commotion as the townsfolk encircled her with chants of kill the elephant, kill the elephant. Fearing that his dates in other towns would be canceled if they heard that his circus was home to a homicidal pachyderm, Charlie Sparks had no choice but to give in to these demands for vengeance. The only question was how Mary would meet her end. Bullets had already proved ineffective, and neither was poison likely to work. Some people advocated crushing Mary slowly between two opposing railway engines. Others called for her head to be tied to one locomotive and her legs to another, so that she would be dismembered alive as they set off in opposite directions. Another option was electrocution. There was a horrific precedent for this thanks to Thomas Edison, inventor of the first commercially viable electric light bulb. At a time when America was choosing which of the two main forms of electricity to adopt, direct current or alternating current, he had patents for many devices using the former and stood to profit hugely if it was chosen over its rival. Claiming that DC was the safer of the two, Edison spread false stories about fatal accidents supposedly involving AC. He also staged various demonstrations in which animals were publicly electrocuted with AC, the most spectacular of which came about in 1903 when a new amusement park opened in New York's Coney Island. One of the attractions was an elephant named Topsy, but it was claimed that she had become violent and uncooperative and the owners sought publicity for their new venture by executing her with Edison's help. A huge crowd saw Topsy place her feet obediently into specially designed wooden sandals lined with copper wiring and linked to an AC power supply. When the switch was thrown, smoke billowed up from her feet, and within a few minutes, it was all over. One newspaper reported the public's morbid delight in watching her demise, 
even though it caused an unpleasant smell to mingle with the scent of roasted peanuts sold at two cents a bag. But her death proved in vain, because Edison's plot failed, and America eventually went with AC as its standard electricity current. This had reached rural Tennessee by 1916, but not with sufficient power to kill an elephant. So, Charlie Sparks came up with the equally sensational idea of hanging Mary. The next day, the circus visited Irwin, Tennessee, which had a 100-ton crane used to lift railway carriages on and off the tracks. This was strong enough to support an elephant, and the matinee-goers, disappointed by not seeing Mary in the ring that afternoon, were relieved by the news that they could see her being hanged shortly afterwards at no additional charge. As she was led away to the railway yard, the other four elephants followed Mary, each entwining their trunk in the tail of the animal in front, just as they had done in countless parades. Charlie Sparks hoped that the presence of the other elephants would keep Mary complacent, but as a chain was placed around her neck at the gallows, they trumpeted mournfully to her. And he feared that she might try to run away. To stop this from happening, one of her legs was tethered to a rail, but nobody thought to release it as the crane whirred into action and she was hoisted into the air. There was an awful cracking noise. The sound of her bones and ligaments snapping under the strain. She had been raised no more than five feet when the chain around her neck broke, dropping her to the ground and breaking her hip. Children in the crowd panicked and ran for cover, but Mary simply sat dazed and in terrible pain. Meanwhile, one of the circus hands ran up her back, as if climbing a hill rather than a living creature, and attached a stronger chain. The winch was powered up again, and this time Mary was raised high into the air, her thick legs thrashing and agonized shrieks and grunts audible even over the laughter and cheers of those watching below. <laughs> Finally, she fell silent and hung there for a half hour before a local vet declared her dead. Her gruesome end is recorded in a photograph so horrifically surreal that some have suggested it must be a fake. But, all too sadly, its authenticity has been confirmed by other photographs taken at the time. That night, the circus went ahead as usual, but after the show, one of the remaining elephants broke away from the herd and began running towards the railway yard. Since wild elephants are thought to return to the bones of fallen family members for many years, he perhaps went in search for Mary. But he was quickly recaptured and returned to the life of captive misery from which he had escaped. Knowing that Mary no longer had to endure this cruel and unnatural existence is perhaps the only consolation to be drawn from this awful tale. Today, she still lies buried in a huge grave which was dug for her using a steam shovel. Some said the hole was as big as a barn, but no one knows exactly where it is, or seems much inclined to find it. There remains no monument to Mary the Elephant in Irwin, Tennessee, the town which hanged an elephant and apparently remains ashamed of having done so to this very day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse, and we bring you every kind of story here on Our American Stories, Murderous Marys. Never heard it. It makes an amazing movie, I think. Very cinematic. Big themes. 
And to hear more of our material, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear stories about every walk of life from American history to the arts to sports and to stories like these, stories you'd never heard of and stories that will surely move you. Sometimes they'll make you laugh. Sometimes we'll make you cry. Sometimes we'll just get you sick to your stomach and just wonder, wow, how could man be so cruel? And we were moved in just that way by Jesse's piece. More after these messages. Hanging out on the coast, oh well, those plans are long gone. And he said, there goes my life. There goes my future, my everything, might as well kiss it all goodbye. There goes my life. And you're listening to Kenny Chesney singing There Goes My Life. It changed his life, for sure. Catapulted his career. This song raced to the top of the charts. And on this show, we love music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's nothing like it. Shut up, just listen. We're going to do the story behind the story of this song, and we've done it for a few others. Gimme Shelter, what a story that is. Another Brick in the Wall, and we did it for Light My Fire. And this song, There Goes My Life, has quite a a story behind it. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend, fellow writer Wendell Mobley. And this is from Country Weekly. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell... Neil would tap into a tender, secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, why don't we write about a teenage boy who got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I'd even had the words, there goes my life, in my notebook for over a year. At that point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he fathered while he was still in high school. My daughter's name was Lexi, Wendell explained to me. We lost her when she was a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. So these good friends didn't know this until this moment. Though he had been Neil's friends for years, Wendell had never shared this part of his life. Quote, I've been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like now. Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at the right time. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing that first verse on the porch, says Neil, who's the father of two young daughters himself. I've got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had been and finding out something like that, man. Neil's voice trails off after that, overcome by the emotional impact. He pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts. 
That just got all over me. I broke down in front of my wife. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions poured out like water. We cried and wrote and sang and ate and cried and wrote and sang and ate, says Neil with a tension-releasing laugh. There wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close to me. Kenny Chesney recorded that powerful tune about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infancy to adulthood with a decided change of emotions along the way. The single took off with rocket speed, hitting number one after just a few weeks. But beyond its chart success, There Goes My Life has wielded a far-reaching impact. Neil and Wendell have heard countless stories of estranged fathers and daughters actually reuniting, all because of their song. And of course, it changed for so many people. The whole idea of carrying a child to birth that otherwise they may not have wanted to. Right after we were done writing that song, Wendell remembers, Neil and I talked about how this was a perfect marriage between personal and universal storytelling. It's these kinds of stories when you know it's happening all over that is really so rewarding to hear. So I wanted to take you to an ASCAP songwriters conference in Boston. And I love these ASCAP songwriters conferences and you hear us play them. Wendell was there and so was Kenny Chesney. And here's Kenny giving props and respect to the writer and the man whose song, whose story turned into this song. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney. I will tell you that when I, I remember the first time I heard this song and my producer, Buddy Cannon, uh, we were uh, not in his Cadillac, Craig, but we were in his truck. And he goes, I got, you got to hear something. And he played me this song. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, are you sure that we can record this song because I knew it was one of those songs that that you just don't come across every day, you know. And it was a um, as a songwriter, this is the best bridge to any song I've ever heard. This bridge kills <laughs> that me. That kills me. I, so, I cry. I cry when he sings it. it. Freaks me out every time. So this this song right here, I just want you guys to know. I think it might have was it might have been the first single off of the When the Sun Goes Down record. I it think. was. Yeah. So, um, but I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck. Hearing this song, and it was just, I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life. And that's how much I love this song. Help me out, Kenny. And like Sinatra, who always thanked his writers, uh, Kenny Chesney always, and all these country artists always give props to the writers, because without the song, well, what do you have? And so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way, for my money, I like Wendell's version better. But you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley. already a great song. Already. All he could see were his dreams. 
going up in smoke So much for ditch in this town Hanging out on the coast Oh, well Those plans are long gone And he said And that spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer, in the end, sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney, who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge, and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and a few thousand diapers later That mistake you thought he made it Covers up the refrigerator, oh yeah And he loves that little girl Mama waiting to tuck her in As she fumbled up those steps She smiled back at him Dragging that teddy bear sleeve Blue eyes and bouncing curls And he smiled There goes my life There goes my future My everything I love you, Daddy, good night There goes my Abercrombie clothes and 15 pairs of shoes in his American Express. He checked the old slam the hood, said you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the West Coast. That first chorus, There Goes My Life, Resignation. Second chorus, There Goes My Life, Little Girl Running Up the Stairs. Third chorus, There Goes My Life, She's Out of Here. The house is empty. 
Absolutely beautiful. There goes my the story of the story behind the story of There Goes My Life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And great job to the whole crew here, as always. There goes my life. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez now brings us this latest edition from our Rule of Law series. The federal government fought to take Howard Root's medical device company away from him. But first, he had to have a company. Go to law school to be a litigator, and then I go out to do my summer associate job, and I realize that litigation is mainly research writing. There was a partner there who hadn't seen a courtroom as a senior lawyer on a trial for his first 10 years. So I thought, that's not what I want to do. I want to do something that's a little more active, a little bit more getting things done. And so that's when I decided I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And I wanted to live in Minnesota, so I come to Minnesota. But then I show up at Dorsey and Whitney thinking that this is a career, a profession, and people are going to be happy and pulling together. But it was more bill by the hour, get your hours in. The biggest frustration is if you do more work, the client pays more money. And so, so you're trying to get the most done for the least, and the client is always upset that you're charging him too much money. So I thought the way to solve that is to go to work for a corporation where I'm not paid by the hour, and lo and behold, the first client that offered me that job was in medical devices. That is, until he lost that job. And so what did Howard do? He decided to start his own medical device company. And medical companies, given all the safety risks and regulations, aren't exactly the easiest companies to start. Plus, he wasn't a doctor, scientist, or engineer. You'd think this 36-year-old didn't really have much going for him at all. And I had absolutely everything I needed to be a successful CEO and a successful company, except two little details. I had no money and I had no medical device. But everything else I was ready to go for. But it's more important to have the skill set and the drive and the desire to get something done than it is to have the money or the specific idea. You can find money, you can find ideas. You can't find that ability or the judgment or the drive to get it done. And supposedly, he didn't have that either. When the business that I was working at wasn't growing and they let me go, my boss you know, paid to have a personality assessment done for me, which would tell me what I should do with my career. So I said, it's free. I'll sit down. I'll go through this. I go through it. And the guy comes back and says, you should be a number two or you should be a lawyer. You definitely should not be an entrepreneur. You don't have any of the marks of entrepreneur. It's like, well, I'm going to do an entrepreneur then. Howard found some money. He found a doctor who had an idea 
for a sealant after a cardiologist implants a stent. He licensed it from the doctor, and he had himself a great little company until a competitor came in. And they took 85% share of the market that I was going after. So we were locked at about $12 million in sales, and we were losing $15 million a year while doing that. And I didn't see a way out. So I went back to the board and said, you know, I think our first product, clinically, it works. But commercially, we can't beat the competition. So we're going to lose all our money if we keep down this path. A company that, after several years, has only one product, and it's losing a lot of money. At this point, the board of this public company might want to shut it down, let the investors take the money that's left, and run. But that's not how Howard saw things. Instead, what I think we should do is de-emphasize the only product we had at the time and emphasize new products that we can develop and get those on the market before our money runs out. And I think then we can have a standalone medical device company. But that's easier for Howard to say. He's trying to save face. Everyone else isn't in this same boat and didn't have the same enthusiasm for his plan. I announced it to Wall Street and our stock went from I think $26 was the high price, and it went down to 70 cents when we announced uh, what we were going to do with this refocus, because we, we really didn't know what other products we were going to launch. But the board of directors who actually controlled the company did have that other option. The board gets together and says, you know, if we shut down right now, we'll, we can give the shareholders $2 for each share they own. So why shouldn't we shut down now and give this, the money back and d- more than double their money? Well, you know, that is a legitimate question to ask. And uh, I had to go in there and say, because I think we've got a good chance of making it into $5 or $10 a share if we continue to do what we've done. And at that point, you know, they, they really have the choice of either pulling the plug or going forward. It was a six-to-one vote. The one guy who didn't vote for going down this path was the doctor who I had licensed the idea from. He thought this was a crazy plan, so he left the company. So my only clinical expertise in the company left at the same time um, that the board voted to go down a path with no products in the bag. A huge sigh of relief for Howard for a few minutes, because yet again, he had to go out there and find a product. I was worried. I was worried that we wouldn't come up with something. And, you know, fear for me is something, if you don't have anything to do, fear can overcome you. And and in my case, if if I just sit around and think about something and I don't have anything to keep myself occupied, that would be intolerable. But if you've got something to do, then your mind is occupied. And then you can kind of tolerate it and continue to go forward. We launched three new products. And that really rebounded the company. And we almost doubled sales in 2004 from 2003. So that was our first near-death experience. The second one came out of nowhere seven years later on June 28th, 2011. I get a call from someone at the office that tells me that we've got a subpoena. And, well, that's not unusual for a company to get a subpoena. There's a collection matter in it. I asked them, where is the subpoena from? And they said, it's from the government. That's, that is a little unusual. Then I asked, where in the government? It's from San Antonio. That's strange, because I'd never been in San Antonio. 
And then I asked, what's it about? And they're investigating a federal criminal violation by my company. And it hits you from out of the blue, and you think, what the heck could be going on? I mean, we're not a criminal operation. But for the next five years, he'd have to fight to prove that every single day. And when we come back, more of this compelling story, Howard Root's story, the founder of the medical device company Vascular Solutions, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of Howard Root, the unlikely founder of a medical device company, and who one day, out of the blue, received a subpoena from the federal government. This saga all started because one of Howard's employees, a former one, filed a lawsuit in the Western District of Texas, and it wasn't just any old lawsuit. He filed it with the U.S. Attorney's Office as a whistleblower, leaving the government to decide whether they wanted to take on the case. And if they do, they're the ones to do it, not the whistleblower and their lawyer, which means that all of the expenses are on the federal government's dime, a virtually unlimited one, whereas companies, especially small ones, do not. And if the government wins the case, the whistleblower gets 25% of the winnings. A big percentage. And so the whistleblower has a big incentive to drum up a big case for the biggest payday possible. And this whistleblower's story was that Vascular Solutions was marketing one of their products off-label. So you start off with something that's fairly confusing. When you say you have a, an approved medical device, the device isn't approved. The device is approved for a specific use or for an indication for use. And so you get approval to use, say, a scalpel for cutting this part of the body, but it's not approved for using it in a different part of the body. That would be an off-label use. Confused yet? Well, there's more. Now, you add to that that doctors can use any medical device for any use, and it's not illegal. It's actually necessary because you cannot possibly get approval for a device for everything a doctor can use it for. They'll just grab it and go. So the law is that doctors can use a device for anything they want, and then companies are only supposed to talk about it for use in the indications that it's approved for. That's what the FDA wants to have happen. But the courts have said this is a free speech thing. If the doctors are legally able to use it, sales reps can talk about that use all they want. That's free speech, it's not false, it's not misleading, it's actually in the best interest of the patient because the device sales rep has the most information about it. But the FDA and DOJ want to make it a crime. And they're carelessly ignoring the courts. 
whereas Vascular Solutions is overly careful. And that included doing things that the FDA didn't even ask them to do, but they could. Vascular Solutions had a product line called Verilase, which treats varicose veins, the pooling of blood in a leg's vein that can cause skin ulcers and even amputation. And Vascular Solutions approved FDA use for it generally covered all varicose veins. But in an abundance of caution, 12 different times they went back to the FDA to ask them to approve one of the products' treatment of a specific use. And they were granted it each time, yet strangely, on the 13th time, the FDA didn't approve it. But no matter, Howard would act out of an abundance of caution again. He told his sales reps not to promote this specific product, the short kit, for this specific vein, the perforator. And then, unexpectedly, he was punished for this caution. Now, Vascular Solutions, my company, when we were dealing with the FDA, we did everything the FDA ever wanted us to do, even if it was not legally necessary. Because if they don't like you, they can come and inspect you every single day. They can shut you down. So we said yes, sir, to everything they wanted. That actually creates more liability. We tell our sales reps, do not talk about an off-label use, period. Even though legally they can, if we tell them that, and then someone does it, something I told them not to, they think it's illegal, I'm giving them the fear of God, don't do this, but I want them so far away from that line and I want them so far on the good side of the FDA that I'm not giving them a legal lesson, I'm giving them just an instruction. And here's where the problem came in is, the sales rep who became a disgruntled employee thought that we were doing something illegal because someone was doing something that I told them not to do. And he just assumed that must be because it's illegal. One rogue sales rep put together a presentation for how the short kit can help perforator veins, which was exactly what Howard instructed them not to do. A clear instruction that all of the other 69 sales reps followed. And all of the sudden, an entire company is at risk. And all over a product that they only sold $500,000 of ever, making up 0.5%, 0.5% of their sales, and never even harmed a patient. But the Department of Justice's Tim Finley told them that it was going to get them indicted with a $20 million bounty on their heads. And he then proceeded to make Howard this quote-unquote offer. I'd had to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. It had to be accepting responsibility that I actually, not only was I the responsible corporate officer, but I needed to sign a statement saying that I directed this conduct, which is absolutely, positively not true. It's, it's false. But I had to make that statement. With that, I would be excluded from working anywhere in healthcare for a minimum of five years. I'd pay a fine back to the government. Of 2.3 million dollars. The one thing they gave me with that was they said, if you plead guilty, we can recommend that you don't do any prison time. It'll be like six months of home confinement. But the prosecutors don't make that decision. The judge does. The settlement would have required Howard to lie and would have destroyed his career. It wasn't much of an option at all. 
but to many, it would still be the better option. A $2.3 million fine versus a $20 million one. The likelihood of not going to jail versus a higher chance of landing in jail. And yet to Howard, it wasn't the better option. He saw it as a shakedown proposal from his own government, and he rejected it. I don't know. Maybe I was naive. I didn't think that was that much different. If I plead guilty to something and say I did something wrong, I'm just not going to be happy the rest of my life. And if I'm in prison for a year of that or two years of that, well, so be it. They would have had to get to the point where if I had pled guilty to something that I said I did not do, but I'm the responsible officer, the buck stops with me, and therefore I take responsibility for this, that would have allowed me to continue on with my life, and that might have been something I would have considered just to get out of the indictment. But that's the sick feeling is that even if you're innocent, the government can make an offer where you will plead guilty to get out of an indictment in virtually any case. It's just there's very few people who would be willing to go all the way to the mat to a jury verdict if they've got any kind of an out that saves their life. But that's the path that Howard chose, a path where the government lands a conviction against you 91% of the time. Howard chose to toss the dice to be one of the lucky few to land in the 9%. But Howard wasn't the only one with a choice. His board, yet again, had the ultimate choice. And again, they backed him. It's a danger, because as far as I know, I'm the first indicted CEO to stay running an indicted public company all the way through trial. Their federal indictment came down through the secretive grand jury process. I was a lawyer and I had no clue. I mean, I never paid attention to what grand juries are and, and how unfair they are to the witness. A grand jury is, you know, one of these supposedly, you know, stalwarts of justice in America is a grand jury. That no one gets indicted for a major crime without 12 independent common people of the community saying that there's probable cause that a crime occurred. And the idea is great because we should not be falsely accusing people of crimes. Just the accusation alone is enough to destroy a lot of people. So you want to make sure there's a check on prosecutors. Well, great, but the problem is it's not a check on prosecutors. It can't possibly be when the result is a foregone conclusion. The number of grand juries that do not indict and we're talking, you know, 0.0001%. I think the statistic is like 17 in the last 10 years. I mean, it's so unusual. But if you want to indict anyone, you could indict anyone in America. And when we come back, more of this terrific story. And my goodness, the numbers on grand jury indictments is pretty staggering. Almost 99.93% of all grand juries lead to indictment. And Howard Root, the founder of the medical device company Vascular Solutions, is at the bad end of a bad prosecutor and an overreaching government. And when we come back, Howard's story, the rest of his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Howard Root's story of his medical device company, Vascular Solutions, being targeted by their own federal government. I did not know that there is no judge in a grand jury proceeding. There is no opposing counsel in the grand jury proceeding. The grand jury room isn't even a courtroom. It's just a little conference room where they have 12 grand jurors who are not paying attention, a court reporter, the prosecutor, and the witness. And the prosecutor asks the question of the witness. There is no one there to object on your behalf as, as the witness. There's no judge to rule on it, if you, even if you did object. Your only choice is to say, I want to talk to my lawyer, and you have to leave the room talk to your lawyer and then come back in and then the prosecutor continues to ask the question. So it's an unfair uh, position for the employee to be in. And the six of Howard's employees who were called to testify at the grand jury were asked questions in ways that weren't really questions. These employees go in and they believe, like I did at the start, if you're innocent in America, what you should do is cooperate and tell the truth to the prosecutors. I told each employee when they went down to the grand jury, I have only one instruction for you, tell the truth. But the the prosecutors are asking questions from seven or eight years ago, and they don't do it in a sense of asking the sales rep's opinion. If they did, the sales rep would say, I don't know the law, but the prosecutors would go in front of the grand jury and say, you know that off-label promotion is illegal, don't you? And when an assistant U.S. attorney says what the law is, most salespeople will agree. One of the reasons they're salespeople is they like to agree. They never say no to the customer. And the customer in this case, they think, is that prosecutor. So they're giving testimony to the prosecutors, which is exactly the words the prosecutor said to them. And then the prosecutor says, see, the corporation knew this was illegal. Now you, the CEO, are responsible. You're going to prison. And this would be the so-called evidence that the government prosecutors would use in the courtroom. And when the employees were wise enough to push back against the prosecutors, there were consequences. If someone says, no, that did not happen, we were not instructed to go out and promote products off-label. We were a by-the-book company. Then the prosecutor wants to amp it up. And he'll start with saying, other people disagree with you. Are you calling them a liar? Which is against the law for a prosecutor to bring up another witness's testimony. (laughs) Or he will say, if you want to take that position, it should be made known that I have the power to destroy your career because I think you're lying. And if you're lying, that's fraud. And if I say to Department of Health and Human Services that this healthcare employee is engaged in fraud, they will exclude you from working with any institution that takes a Medicare patient, which is every hospital in America. So you'll never sell another medical device if you get excluded. Well, then people think, well, boy, I I better agree with this guy. I don't want to get destroyed. And then he says, and if you say this over here, we'll give you immunity. And worse than just say this, the government prosecutors went as far as coercing the employees into signing incriminating statements that they had written. Now, this statement was written by the prosecutors. It's written in legalese. I know my sales reps could never even understand what they were saying, much less come up with it on their own. And the, the prosecutors would not allow the witness to change the statement. Now, if this is a statement of the employee of what happened, the employee should be allowed to change whatever they want. And they shouldn't be threatened that if you say the wrong thing according to the prosecutors, you get destroyed. And if you say the right thing, you get immunity. I mean, that's a way of getting not truth, but actually the opposite of truth. And if the employee did not do that in the case of Glenn Holden, 
the prosecutors said he was in obstruction of justice and lying and indicted him on perjury. But it didn't stop there. Howard later learned that it was one of his employees, not him, who was subjected to the prosecutor's most reprehensible tactic. Beth Matthews was our regional manager in Great Lakes, and they actually told her. It was just so bizarre, because she said she's getting abused by these prosecutors who want her to testify a way that she knows is not true. And then they say, you should rethink your answer because, quote, we have the power to withhold rights and privileges provided to your natural-born son. Now, you know, it's weird on a couple fronts. First, why are you threatening my children? But second, how specific do you have to be to know that she's got a natural-born son and an adopted son? I mean, to her, the weird thing was they were telling her that we know all about you, so you better do what we tell you because we've got power over your entire life. And to top it off, here's how the grand jury process addressed the person who supposedly committed the injustice. The prosecutors decide who to call in. They didn't call me in. They would not bring me into the grand jury in order to give testimony to the grand jury because that was not going to be helpful to them. So the grand jurors only heard one side of the story, one corrupted by illegal and questionable practices and never heard the other side. What do you think they were going to do? The indictment came down on November 13th, 2014 with six criminal charges against Glenn Holden, nine criminal charges against Vascular Solutions, and nine against Howard Root. They tried to appeal to the higher-ups at the Department of Justice, and they weren't interested. Potentially worse is how Howard's senator, Amy Klobuchar, reacted. I've known Amy since 1985. She was a politician back then, even when she was a lawyer at the law firm working with me. She will give you a hot dish recipe if you need one any time of day. That's fine. She'll let you tour the Capitol and give you a preferred pass. But if you actually want her to look into something that's substantive, we call her small stuff Amy for a reason. I sent her staff the background on this case. So she said to me, or her chief of staff said to me, that there is a rule that senators cannot get involved in ongoing DOJ investigations, which is 100% false. Because my lawyers used to work in the Department of Justice, and they got called all the time by senators asking for an accounting of what was going on. But that was Amy's way of saying I can't do something because of a rule, rather than saying I won't do something to help you. His senator didn't tell him the truth. They're now preparing for the trial, and Howard's team searched for their own evidence that would exonerate him. And one of the places that they looked was that FDA reviewer who strangely denied their 13th application. We found the reviewer, and we asked him some questions, like, what happened and what was your experience? We found out that he had been at the FDA for only a month. He had no medical device experience at all. And oh, the other thing about him was his prior job prior to getting hired at the FDA was he was working at a McDonald's as the shift manager at night. So you go from managing a local McDonald's to being the FDA reviewer on varicose vein treatments in one month. Now this guy actually understood his limitations. And so when he got our application, he asked someone who had been there a long time, what do you think? And that guy said, yeah, you should approve it. 
And so he went, started doing that. And then someone else got their hands on it. And the guy said, no, 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 we need a clinical study. That other person had never worked in this area and wanted a clinical study in every application. So now this is damning evidence because most of the people in the FDA are saying, you don't need to get an approval. This is exonerating evidence. This is stuff the jury would love to hear. The investigator, George Scavdis, interviewed, I would say interviewed, he claims it was an interview. He talked with the examiner the, and, and the examiner gave him that information. He never, George Scavdis never wrote it down and never gave it over to us. We had to find this examiner independent of the government. And so when we found the examiner and got that information, we asked the prosecutors, well, where's the memos? And every investigation needs to be documented. The response back was, we did not conduct an investigation of the examiner. Well, and they used the quote marks around investigation, which means that they're drawing a distinction between what they did. Said, the prosecutor did ask some questions of him, but based on that, there was no evidence that was relevant, so we did not conduct an investigation. And when we come back, the final segment of this remarkable story, Howard Root's story, the founder of the medical device company, Vascular Solutions, and my goodness, what a story about, well, so much, but the rule of law is just one. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Howard Root's epic battle against his own government. They get to the trial, and the government prosecutor's case is so weak that almost all of their witnesses were hostile ones. They didn't want to be there. And their testimony would actually make the case of the defense. And the most explosive example of this was the government's last witness, Shane Carlson. So Shane probably hasn't slept the three nights before then, going into a courtroom where he's going to get pounded by prosecutors and he's going to sit there with his boss in the courtroom. And if Shane says the wrong word, his boss is going to go to prison. I mean, he's feeling it. He's on the stand and the prosecutors are using his grand jury transcripts, which he doesn't even remember, and at the time didn't know what he was saying to impeach him and by changing him and beating him up on everything. And he doesn't know what to say, so he's, he's got the deer in the headlights look to him. And this goes on for like two to three hours. And then it switches over to the cross-examination. And our lawyers are getting up there asking him more softball questions to get him to come out with what he's feeling. And we're going over, now you didn't want to be convicted of a crime, did you, Mr. Carlson? No. And when you were thinking about what these prosecutors were doing to you, you weren't thinking of yourself, were you? He said, no. In fact, you were thinking of your little daughters, weren't you? And that's when he broke down. That's what he was thinking. What will his daughters think of him if he's indicted of a felony for lying to the government? And that just came out at him and he just started sobbing. I mean, my wife was watching on the transcripts this testimony going on and there was just a silence there. The transcript stopped. It's an online transcript. It stops, you go, what's going on here? And it's because everyone is silent in the courtroom while he's trying to compose himself. And the jury's looking at him thinking, 
what the hell is going on here when prosecutors are beating up this guy to the point that he's worried about his children over something that's so insignificant. And that's one of the biggest disconnects in our case was that the prosecutors thought this was a horrible act and yet they couldn't point to anyone who had been hurt. You just can't make it out to be a bad case if no patient was hurt, if no investor lost money, if no one did anything that was even material in any way. And the jury got that. I always worried about what would happen if the lawyers were just left to themselves. Because they come up with ideas and they're risk averse, but they want to figure out a way to avoid making a mistake. So I was down there from the very beginning, before the trial started, all the way to the end in San Antonio at the hotel room, living with my lawyers, being in the war room. So if I saw anything that was starting to go a little bit weird between my lawyer, between the company's lawyers, between the employee's lawyers, between the former employee's lawyers, I would be there and part of it. So if I needed to direct something, I could direct it before it got to a decision. The only exception to that was I came back to Minnesota for the President's Day weekend in February of 2016. And then I fly back down on Monday night thinking everything's good, we got it down, we're going well, our case is coming up, we're three weeks in. And I get there and my lawyer texts me, hey Howard, can you stop by the war room? We got something we wanna discuss with you. And just when I got that, I knew, oh my God, they came up with something, I'm not gonna like it. They got lawyer upon lawyer upon lawyer pounding on me, what is this gonna be? And I get there and they say, we do not wanna call a single witness to testify in our defense. And I thought, oh my Lord, you don't want to call a witness. Putting the defendant himself on the stand is risky. And I had arguments with my lawyer from day one. Is, I will testify. I will testify. No matter what you say, I will testify. That is my constitutional right. I'm going to do it. You cannot change my mind. But when they said they're not going to call any witness, that meant they're not going to call me to testify, which means I don't get to testify. It wasn't because they wanted to keep me off the stand, although they were worried about that. It was because they were worried that if we called a case, the government would get a chance to put on a rebuttal case. And there were a couple of witnesses waiting in the wings that my lawyers thought were going to be big time government witnesses that they were waiting to sandbag us with on rebuttal. And then we can't do a rebuttal after the rebuttal, so that would be the last word. My reasoning though was, we had all this very emotional testimony that had just come in. Jurors actually were visibly upset, angry at the prosecutors. And I could count at least five of them and the alternate juror number one, so six total, that were on our side. Making it difficult for the government to get the unanimous jury verdict against Howard that federal criminal prosecutions require. I didn't think there was anything that was going to happen from there on that would change them from saying the government is guilty and Howard Root and Vascular Solutions are not guilty. Having said that, if I had been convicted, that decision not to call witnesses, I would have regretted for the rest of my life. Because my wife said, if the jury sees you talk about what you do and why you do it, they're going to connect with you. It would turn out not to have been necessary. The jury acquitted Howard and Vascular Solutions of every single charge, landing them in the 0.5%, the one defendant out of every 200, to be acquitted by a jury in a federal criminal trial. And yet, you could also say that Howard really should be in jail, given that the government charged him with a strict liability crime. Strict liability crime means that if a salesperson says the wrong word, and I have the power and authority to prevent or correct that word, 
then I am responsible for the crime as much as he is. So if someone says the wrong word, I have the power to prevent it because that's my job. I have the power to correct it. I have the authority as CEO to prevent it and correct it. So I would swear under oath, I have the power and authority to prevent and correct every violation in the company when I'm the CEO. So the only question then becomes, did the salesperson say the wrong word? And if they did, the CEO goes to prison. So I don't know of anything else in America that's so disjointed from, from justice than the concept of a strict liability crime, because you cannot change something you don't know anything about. And if I didn't intend to do something, if I didn't know they did it, I could even have told them not to do something. They did that, and then I'm responsible for it. And if you've never managed 100 salespeople, think 100 teenagers, and realize that you can't live in that standard. You know, the, the evidence they presented was enough for the jury to believe that I was guilty of a crime because that was the jury instruction. All I needed to be was a responsible corporate officer and someone had to do something wrong. Danny McGiff, who the government pressured and threatened and incentivized and, and bribed, signed a statement that he had engaged in criminal activity. You take his admission with that statute, I'm guilty of a misdemeanor. And I think the jury just didn't believe that that's a crime. But technically they could. They could have come to that decision. I went into this thinking I feared the jury because we're all, you know, you're fearful of 12 angry men, right? And you've seen the movie, you've, you've heard about these things where jurors are just want to string you up. And then you think on the other side, you think there's got to be good people in government. And sure, there are bad people in everything. There's bad people in medical devices, in banks, in the government, police officers, everywhere. But there's enough good people that if you appeal it, that the good people will see it and they will not allow this to continue. And my whole case destroyed my thinking on that. Because every time we appealed it up, we got less attention and less judgment. I mean, the senior guy at Department of Justice that we appealed to, he had never tried a case before. And yet he's the last person deciding whether indictments get issued. And what I saw was what they wanted to do was get a CEO convicted of this kind of crime because they wanted to put a mark down. And they were looking for that around the country. And they wanted to find a public company so it would be more visible. They wanted to find a small public company so they could actually punish them harder. If they went after Medtronic, there'd be a lot more uproar about it because that's tens of thousands of employees and more publicity and more connections. So they intentionally pick smaller people to go after because those are the ones they can beat. And that's what they want is a sign to everyone else to stand in line. The government failed to send out this sign and there's not been a single consequence for their failure. All of the government actors in this story are still employed by us. We taxpayers are still paying for the salaries of the prosecutors, Bud Paulson Jr., Tim Finley, Christina Playton, and also for FDA special agent, George Skabdis. In terms of going after prosecutors, they have immunity for their job, so you cannot sue them for that. And then you have to bring a disciplinary investigation against them, which goes into the Department of Justice. And that organization, the Office of Professional Responsibility, reports to the Attorney General. And so it's an inside organization investigation of inside organization activity. So if you try to bring that up to someone, they're going to just ignore you, um, and we did that. They're still employed but Howard is not. There are three to 5% of the people in America who are entrepreneurs, people who create jobs, people who create businesses. And if those three or five become two to four, 
our growth goes way down. If those three to five become four to six, our growth goes up. We're playing at such small margins of people who actually go out there and create things. It's not that they're the most important people in the world, it's just that in the economy, there are a few number of people who are creating a lot of the growth in companies. And if you drive those people out, bad things happen. So when I was being attacked, the first reaction is, I'm gonna defend myself. Then after you realize that you are likely going to win, then you think, you know, they're gonna to wanna to try this again, or I'm subject to this risk again. Do I want to do this again? And the answer then is no. You know, sure, I loved medical devices. It was my life's ambition that I found when I was 35. But at 55, 56, I decided that staying out of jail, staying out of the courtroom was more important than doing this for another 10 to 20 years. And when I realized that, you know, you mentally you just switch off. And what a story. Great job on that, Alex, as always. And that's why we bring you our American Dreamer series. Entrepreneurs are up against enough. But to face an unscrupulous prosecutor, our own federal government trying to extract fines in the end money using criminal proceedings as a threat. So few people can buck that. They'll just pay the fine. It's like getting that letter from the IRS. Your accountant says, hey, you didn't do anything wrong, but just pay them. And we love to bring you those stories of the overreaching federal government when it does. And Howard Root's story here on Our American Stories.